one of the uh, great blessings of in my life of working here at this church is um, the wonderful uh, way that my own personal history uh, is interwoven with so many of you, and John Ragsdale is an example of that. We were reminiscing uh, a few minutes ago about the last time we led a worship service together. I completely forgot this, but it was at Palms in 93, you said, and you were, I guess, an intern of some kind, yeah? And, uh, but I remember before that, when uh, I was uh, the area director for Young Life here, and John was trying, I think, to search out his sense of vocation, trying to transition maybe from business to who knows what, and so he uh, worked for Young Life for a little bit. Our office was in a, uh, a pretty decrepit, um, it was right across the street above the Sunray Theater, and uh, so John was with us uh, for, I don't know, a few months or a year, I can't remember, back then. But even before that, I knew the Ragsdales as their son's soccer coach, uh, and as I have with a few others of you. So anyway, it's, it's always uh, a pleasure to, to reconnect and to work together again, and so um, we welcome you, John. Appreciate your being here today. The scripture lessons for today begin with the epistle lesson, uh, the, the letter of Paul to the church in Galatia. Let's listen now for the word of God from the fifth chapter. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If, however, you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Thank you, Bill. I appreciate uh, your introduction and your invitation to be here with you all this morning. It's a great privilege to be in this pulpit. Uh, And as Bill, the chief reason is what Bill was alluding to, that uh, my relationship with this congregation began 36 years ago. And it was this congregation that uh, developed me into first a deacon and elder in the church and later played a significant role in my formation for ministry cared and nurtured for our family over the years, even when we were away from this congregation. And as I look out, I see some of you that have been along for that 36-year ride. Some of you have been here that whole or part of that time, and others are new. I look out and I see that the the, um, makeup of the congregation has changed, but I also see that the character remains largely the same. There is something in the DNA that winds itself through the fabric of this congregation that remains consistent over the years. Outwardly reaching, intellectually curious, 
caring for one another. It's those kind of qualities that take the congregation through times of crisis, through times of change, transition, through turning points, such as the turning point you're in now, a change of pastors. Our text this morning also is about a turning point. It is perhaps the turning point in the life of Jesus. And it comes to us from the ninth chapter of the book of Gospel of Luke, beginning to read at the 51st verse. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him. On their way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him, but they did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. When his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. Then they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The word of our Lord. Let us pray. O Lord, may these words of my mouth and these meditations of our hearts be found now and always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Well, this is it. This is the turning point. This is the linchpin. This is the fulcrum moment on which the life of Jesus turns. He sets his face to go to Jerusalem. And we know what that means. Surely Jesus knew what that meant. We've read the story. We've seen the movie. We know what Jerusalem means. Confrontation with authorities. Betrayal and desertion by your closest friends. Rejection by those who once hailed you. Pain. The cross. Oh, we know about Jerusalem. But setting his face, why does he set his face to go to Jerusalem? Why does he freely choose to do that? I mean, he's had a pleasant enough ministry so far. Handful of healings, a few exorcisms. He's preached some pretty strong sermons. You've got to hand him that. And he's been transfigured. I mean, not many people get transfigured. So why Jerusalem when Galilee's been so good? Well, almost certainly because he was acquainted with the prophet Isaiah, who said, the Lord helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced, therefore I set my face like flint. And he no doubt recalled the prophet Ezekiel, 
think he was kind of a copycat. He said, son of man, set your face to go to Jerusalem. No doubt those influenced his thinking, but wasn't there a larger purpose? Might there have been others who would be affected by this trip? Others like James and John. Others like us. Others like the three, well, I call them the could-be's. The three people who could be a follower of Christ. And then they set out to go through Samaria of all places. That was not hospitable country. In fact, it was so inhospitable that Jews traveling from Galilee down to Jerusalem would cross over the Jordan River, go down on the east side, and cross back over opposite Jerusalem. They would do anything to avoid Samaria. The Samaritans hated the Jews, and the Jews responded in kind. The squabble was about what so many squabbles are about, religion. The Samaritans thought the holiest place in the world was their Mount Gerizim, and the Jews thought the holiest place was Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And they get so caught up in this interreligious squabble that the Samaritans totally miss Christ in their midst. And James and John have a fitting response, don't they? Oh, let's command fire to come down from heaven and burn them up. What they're remembering is that Elijah did that very thing to some soldiers he wasn't especially pleased with. But what they're forgetting is what Jesus had told them just a short while earlier when on a mission accept the hospitality offered you if none is extended shake the dust off your feet and move on. Isn't it interesting how we seem to remember and call to mind those scripture passages which make us feel so good and righteous about ourselves but we forget those that urge us to do hard things like forgiveness And so they go on their way. And it's not long before someone does want to follow. The first could be, that is, until Jesus asks him to count the cost. It's not going to be very comfortable, Jesus tells him. And this could be has second thoughts. And seeing that volunteers don't always do what they say they'll do, Jesus tries another tactic the next time. He's going to recruit somebody. He says, follow me. Oh, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Let the dead bury their own dead. As for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Jesus is talking about the spiritually dead. Let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead, but you who are spiritually alive, do something with it. In artistic depictions of the temptation of the Buddha, on one side of the Buddha's throne is depicted the temptation of desire, and on the other side of the throne is depicted the temptation of death. Have you ever thought of death as a temptation? What's that getting at? What that is getting at is the temptation to shrink back from life, to play it safe, to refuse to reach out, to refuse the risk of relationship, to refuse to grow. 
Martin Luther King gets at this temptation when he said, if a man happens to be 36 years old, as I happen to be, and some great truth stands at the door of his life, some great opportunity to stand up for that which is right and that which is just, and he refuses to stand up because he wants to live a little longer, or he's afraid his home will be bombed, or he's afraid that he will lose his job, or he's afraid that he will get shot, he may go on to live until he's 80. And the cessation of breathing in his life is merely the belated announcement of an earlier death of the spirit. We die when we refuse to stand up for that which is right. We die, he said, when we refuse to stand up for that which is true. Well, so much for recruitment. That didn't seem to work too well for Jesus either. Maybe he'll try for another volunteer. Oh, I'll follow you, Lord, but first let me say goodbye to those at home. Yeah, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. It's pretty harsh. I mean, it's not that Jesus is against family. What Jesus is against is the idolization of family. What he's talking about is putting family before all else to the exclusion of everything else. It always bugs me a little bit when I hear said about someone at a funeral or read an obituary, well, he really loved his family. As if that in and of itself is a great mark of character. I, I'm not putting that down, but, and I imagine that everybody here loves their family, but what Jesus is getting at is does it go beyond that? Does your love extend outside of the family circle? Well, so much for the third could be. He couldn't find the freedom from his family to have the freedom to follow Christ. Which brings us to this whole notion of freedom. Paul, I think, really helps clarify our thinking about what freedom truly means. And we hear a lot about freedom around the 4th of July. And I think we've gotten to have a kind of a mistaken notion of what freedom means in our country which may come from the title of the founding document, the Declaration of Independence. We have come to think, many of us, that that means independence of the individual, whereas the document, of course, was about the independence of a nation from another nation, not the, individual of, the independence of one person from another. True freedom is not the freedom to be independent, but as Paul reminds us, it's the freedom for relationship. Or as he more specifically draws the contrast, it's freedom, not freedom for self-indulgence, it's freedom for love. It's not freedom from something, it's freedom for something. It means that we ultimately have the freedom to choose to choose between independence or relationship, to choose between self-indulgence or love, to choose between playing it safe or following Christ. 
Viktor Frankl, was a survivor of the Nazi death camps who wrote an exploration of his experiences in a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And in it he writes this, We who lived in the camps can remember the men who walked through our huts, comforting others, giving away their last crust of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a person except one thing, the last of their freedoms, the freedom to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, the freedom to choose one's own way. Next to the gift of Jesus himself, probably the greatest gift God has given us is the gift of freedom. The freedom to choose. God has given us, each one of us, that. The question now is the question that's always been. How will we use it? 